I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's turn over to Acts chapter 2. That will be our scripture reading. Again, kind of a lengthy text, so just uh, sit in reverence and listen to the Word. I hope that you're looking at a copy of the scripture. If not, maybe you can borrow from your neighbor and read Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every detail, by the way, time out, every detail in this particular narrative, all of it, is foundational in the Old Testament. So every detail is significant and very important. So don't just read over it lightly and think about that or or just dismiss what you're reading. And at this sound, referring back to the mighty wind, the thunderous sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The word in the Greek is dialectos, his own language he was hearing. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now he's going to give you a table of the nations that looks like Genesis 11. Listen. Parthenians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? In contrast to the one seeking what it means, then you have the staggering verse in verse 13. But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Wow, what an awesome passage of Scripture. Amen. It's important to remember that Acts is volume 2 of Luke's gospel. Our youth minister is the only one that got it right in the whole right? Remember, we're dealing with volume 1. And volume 2, and this is very important. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. Y'all at least know that story, right? When Jesus is baptized, his baptism was a visible symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit of God coming down upon him. Remember that, like a dove. And it equips him and prepares him for his messianic ministry. The next thing you find in the book of Luke chapter 4 is a sermon delivered. Wow, that's interesting. Here in the book of Acts, volume 2 of Luke, correct, we have a parallel account going on. 
The church is going to be baptized. And without this baptism, there's absolutely no power for the mission. And not only is the church going to be baptized for its mission, but Peter is going to preach a sermon. I'm a preacher. I like sermons, right? So the parallel structure, you can't miss that. Jesus' baptism, uh, the Spirit of God comes upon him for messianic ministry. A sermon is preached. Same parallel structure that we have in the book of Acts. So you must realize the Spirit of God is essential and critical for any work that's going to be done for the king, period. It is absolutely essential. And as one reads Acts chapter 2, it would be a grievous mistake for you to see this as some kind of second blessing or second work of grace. God forbid that that's all you see in this text is some kind of false denominational lesson taught that you receive the Spirit of God as some kind of second work or second blessing. That is a terrible doctrine that is founded nowhere in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, what you see clearly in this text is that the day of Pentecost was critical to usher in the new messianic age and the, incom- the complete era of the Holy Spirit of God at work, just like He's at work today in this church and in this world. John Stott, the great theologian, actually highlights this by saying, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver. There can be no understanding without the spirit of truth. There can be no fellowship without the unity of the spirit. There can be no Christ-like character apart from the fruit of the Spirit, and there can absolutely be no effective witness without the power of the Spirit. So the denominations that say, well, you've got to pray for the baptism of the Spirit, or you, you've got to have it as a second work of grace, or if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Spirit, folks, that is bogus. There is no way that that jihaz with what the Word of God has to say to us. Folks, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not saved. Period. 1 Corinthians 12 13. So that's not the way to read this. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit of God is dead. So the day of Pentecost was absolutely essential. It was vital. It was absolutely necessary for the mission of the church. So here, here they are. They're waiting. Acts chapter 1 verse 4. They're waiting for the promise of the Father, like the Bible says. And again, Everything we see in this text, it's echoes, it is echoing the Old Testament. So I'll have to familiarize you somewhat with the Old Testament, but don't act like a donut today. Don't glaze over on me, or I will start over. Any donuts in the balcony this morning? Some of you probably had long nights and all that kind of stuff. You can't afford not to listen, and I hope that you will. Everything from the big picture down to the smallest details of the Old Testament, has Old Testament echoes and must be understood against the Old Testament background. Let's break this down. The Bible says it was the day of Pentecost, right? That's the first thing we need to think about. It was originally called the Feast of the Grain Harvest. Later on, it was called the Feast of the First Fruits. And finally, it would be called the Feast of Weeks. So you had... 49 weeks, and then you had 50th day. 
Thus you have Pentecost 5, 50. You've got the 50th day. So it's, it's firmly rooted in the Old Testament. I'm not going to take time to read all this, but if you want to look it up, mark down with a pencil Exodus 23, Exodus 34, Leviticus 23, and Deuteronomy 16. I'll give those references once. Again, Exodus 23, 34, Leviticus 23, and Deuteronomy 16. All of these tell the children of Israel how to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, otherwise known as Pentecost. Later on, it also became associated with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Let your theological reflection start running. A harvest is accomplished, right? This is the Feast of Harvest, first fruits, and start thinking about the law being fulfilled. So Pentecost would be known as one of the three pilgrim feasts, which means that millions of people are converging on Jerusalem. Scholars say between two to three million people would come to Jerusalem for each of these three feasts. So this is one of them. It, uh, think about that for a moment. Visitors from the entire known world are converging on Jerusalem on this particular day when it happens. The actual best rendering here of the Greek is when the day of Pentecost had been fulfilled. And the reason that grammar is important is because everything that happened in the Old Testament regarding the, uh, the Pentecost and its celebration is finding its fulfillment on this day. Right now, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It's all finding its fulfillment here on that day. So please remember, the day of Pentecost in the Old Testament pointed to a greater fulfillment and a greater reality and it was fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it's headed. So the shadow of Pentecost would go way beyond grain. Okay, it would. This is Luke's terminology. When it had been fulfilled. So the Spirit of God would come in power on the day that Jews celebrated the day of Pentecost for 1,500 years. What an awesome event. It's happening on the 50th day, just like God said it would. They've been celebrating it for 1,500 years. And of course, the day of Pentecost specifically emphasized a special offering, if you read the Old Testament, which included two baked loaves made from freshly gathered wheat, designated as first fruits. How fitting is that? On a day of harvest, right? When Peter would preach and 3,000 souls would be saved. That's not an accident. That is fulfillment. So as the day of first fruits, Pentecost was so appropriate, appropriate for a harvest with 3,000 souls, a little later getting saved in the very first Christian sermon preached and the very first Christian mission, we have a thousand, we have we have 3,000 people saved. What an awesome harvest. So, it was also considered the anniversary of the law given at Mount Sinai. Why is this significant? Because it was the perfect time to contrast the giving of the law with the giving of the Spirit of God. And so, God knew this, of course. So, the, the Spirit's coming signals the essential difference between the Jewish faith, which won't get you to heaven... And the Christian faith, which means commitment to Jesus, which will get you to heaven. Right? Those two are contrasted on that day. Folks, do you understand it was church people who got saved on the day of Pentecost? It was religious people. 
Most of the time in the Bible when you hear stories of people getting saved, it's religious people getting saved. They've got all the religion, they've got all the forms, but they're lost. And they don't know the Lord. So some of the 3,000, lots of the 3,000 knew all about what the Jewish faith was. But they missed the king of the Jewish faith. They missed Jesus. So that's what's happening on that day. Day of Pentecost. Everybody good with that? You learned that today? Here's the second thing. They were all together in one place. Now it's highly possible that they've moved from the upper room, which was very close to the temple courts area. So let's say that when they were all together in one place, it's possible that they had moved out into the temple courts. But again, the upper room was close by. Now watch verse 2 and 3. We see two things here rooted in Old Testament revelation. Fire and wind. Both of these things, what do they do? They depict what we would call a theophany. Okay? It is an appearance of God, a manifestation of the very presence of God. Do you remember how this took place on Mount Sinai? In such a degree that if the person touched the hem of the mountain, what happened? Zap, you died, right? So we know that the the Shekinah glory of God had come down on that mountain, and it represented that God had come near. So that's what's going on. That's catching people's attention because of the fire and wind. And then the Bible says there was like a violent rushing wind. Now, I lived in Alabama for eight years, and we know what that's like to hear a violent rushing wind. And we look for places of safety when we hear that. Well, you know how that is. You think of Joplin. You think of tornadoes. I would say to you that the wind that they heard here was more of a violent nature than even a tornado. Because it arrested the attention of everybody in the streets of Jerusalem. This was something that was incredible. And it was loud and it was boisterous. Why wind? Because wind represents the very Spirit of God. Oftentimes, those words are interchanged in Hebrew and Greek between breath of God and wind. So, where do we see the Spirit of God and the breath of God at work at first? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the the chaos, the, the depths, and all of a sudden God speaks, and bang, there is creation. Same Hebrew word, breath of God, Spirit of God moving. They're tightly woven together. So the Spirit of God is active in creation with the breath of God. And here we see the Spirit of God manifested here in wind and power. There's another example of this found in Ezekiel 37. And I think about you guys a lot when I read that text. Nobody's laughing, so you don't know the text. It's when Ezekiel is called by God to preach to a valley of dry bones. Right? As a matter of fact, you're so dead that there's nothing there but bones. And the Bible says that God says to Ezekiel, speak. The word prophesy means to preach. How about this? How would you like to be called, Brother David, to a church where you sang before a valley of dry bones all the time? And you just said you are. No, I'm kidding. Uh, But think about that. Prophesy, prophesy. And just think about this. Look, folks. Dead, dry bones. Bones, don't live again. And he says to Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And what an awesome, humble, yet theological reflective answer. Only God, you know. What an awesome answer. That's the answer, right? God says, speak. And then the word breath comes in. God, uh, he prophesies and breath comes in. And the Bible says that there's some rattling going on. I'm praying for that in this church. 
some rattling going on by the breath of the Spirit of God as he begins to lift up dry bones. They're rattling. And then the Bible says he sees tendons or sinews coming together in the joints. And then there's flesh. And then there's skin. And then there's an awesome army of God standing upright. Folks, only the breath of God can do that. There's overtones for resurrection there. But that's an Easter sermon. But just think about this. This is the power of the Spirit of God. Same word, ruach, in Hebrew that's put together with the breath of God and the wind of God and the power of God. So here at Pentecost, there's a mighty rushing wind that comes near. But here's the reason. It's a new era. Okay? It's the messianic age. God's people are being resurrected to new life under the new covenant. Notice the noise fills the entire house. Reminds us of the glory of God filling the temple. The Spirit of God was consecrating a new sanctuary. And it wouldn't be inside of a temple or a tabernacle made with human hands. It would be right inside of the human life. That's where God was residing. Then we see tongues of fire. Notice the language. Tongues of fire. Some commentators believe that what you had was these pillars of fire resting upon individual heads. Now, why is that important? Well, it's not just a pillar of fire separately or corporately, uh, not corporately on the body, but everybody in the upper room would have on them a pillar-like fire above their heads. I I think that may get to the bottom of what's going on. Remember, fire, light, wind is part of the theophany. Fire represents the presence of God. It represents holiness. It represents judgment. And sometimes even... It represents grace. God manifested himself through fire in a burning bush that burned but did not consume. It did not consume it. You know that with Moses. God reveals himself to the Israelites with a pillar of fire by night. And so God is again manifesting something. And I think what happens on this day with the tongues of fire resting upon each one is significant. Remember, Luke is a physician. He's prone to detail. Why is he given this kind of incredible detail? Because remember what Moses said in Numbers 11? He said, I wish that all had the Spirit and all prophesied. But the fact of the matter is, in the Old Testament, not everybody had the Spirit. Is everybody awake? No glazed overlooks yet? Not everybody had the Spirit. The purpose of the fire resting on was a purpose of revelation of the new covenant that's fulfilled in the Holy Spirit being giving and indwelling every individual person. Thus, the tongues of fire on top of every single one of them, representing the fact that God would not come in parts, or He would not give His Spirit uh, partially, but the Spirit of God would come in full. Now the Spirit of God lives in every single person, born of the Spirit of God, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and a part of the new covenant people of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Matthew 3.11, Luke 3.16, record John the Baptist saying that Jesus will baptize in his spirit and fire. So there's that connection there. Now, I think that fire on a tongue is highly appropriate. Because you know what they're going to have? Tongues that are ablaze. Not to say blah, 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 cacophony type things, but to speak of the truth of the resurrected Lord. That's what this is about, folks. Unless you hadn't figured this out, it's pretty clear that this is about a witness to the gospel, to the ends of the earth, which we are responsible for as well as a church of the living God. So the filling of the Spirit will end up 
having this incredible, significant role. Here, filling and baptism are linked real tight together. But as we studied the epistles, we began to see more clarity of what the Apostle Paul means by baptism of the Spirit, which is seldomly taught in the New Testament, as it being synonymous with salvation versus being filled with the Spirit, which is in large part up to you in a lot of ways. If you're not yielded and willing to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, then you're not a Spirit-filled Christian. You've got all of God you're ever going to get if you're saved right inside of you in the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. But the question is, am I filled with the Spirit? Well, you may be and you may not be. Depending on your yieldedness to the Lord and His control over your life. So, God is working. They began to speak in other tongues. Again, Luke uses the term dialectos and it simply meant for Luke, languages. You know, God doesn't do things just for the sake of doing it. Y'all got that? Uh, God was not sitting in heaven thinking, how can I make this thing look a little more striking? And the way I'm going to make this thing look a little more striking is I'm going to take somebody like Blake, who's a hillbilly. And he can't speak all these languages. He doesn't even know what he's going to say. But for the sake of making this thing look theatrical, I'm going to let Blake speak in a foreign tongue so that somebody coming from uh, another word, another world, another time zone might come in and understand the gospel. Folks, that's not what's going on here. God is not trying to build up some kind of huge Pentecostal camp meeting here. That's not what the Word of God is teaching at all. The key to understanding the use of foreign languages is to look back to the Old Testament. Uh, Some would just say, well, the reason we have this is because it it was a necessity for the people to hear the gospel in their own languages. Well, folks, you do realize that when Peter preaches his first sermon, he preaches his first sermon in Greek. Hello, Tokyo. Are y'all listening? Why did he preach it in Greek? Because it's Koine language. So everybody that came that day would have understood the Greek language. Why? It was the language of the day. So although they had a native tongue that they learned where they live, everybody for the most part would know Greek. So when he preached the first sermon, he didn't preach in tongues. He preached the word in Greek as it's written in our Bible. And everybody understood 3,000 people got saved. Y'all listening? So, it can't be just because God wanted them to stand up and speak in a foreign language. Something is bigger than that. And so, if they had any Jewish background, they would have understood either Greek or Aramaic. So, the main reason for the preaching or or for the uh, tongues is in Old Testament teaching. They were given the ability to speak foreign languages successively not simultaneously. He is not present, presenting here a Pentecostal camp meeting where you've got a Pentecostal fest when you've got blah, 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 whatever, cacophony type thing. The idea is that once this event took place, the disciples moved out of the upper room onto the streets and people are absolutely captivated because they are speaking and declaring the mighty deeds of God, i.e. the person and work of Jesus Christ, right before them and their understanding in their own native language. What an awesome thing. That brings us to verse 5, which is critical for Pentecost. This is critical. Why? Because you've got two Old Testament themes being fulfilled. Listen to chapter, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Folks, that is the key verse for Pentecost. If you're looking for a number one verse, that's it. Key people. Why? Because this is about restoration and regathering. Regathering and restoration. How do we know that? 
It's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant where all the nations will be blessed. And it's restoration or it's regathering. Why? Because what do you have when you see this table of nations? Think with me, folks. A table of nations that we ought to be involved with too. When you read the table of nations in Genesis 11 and here in Acts, you are seeing the very fulfillment of regathering. What happened? The northern kingdom fell under besiege to who? The Assyrians. So he's listing ten, ten tribes first, and then he's going down to the south, and he's mentioning the southern kingdom, and he's hitting all four corners of the known world. And they're all there in one place. That's not an accident. That is the ethnos. That is the regathering of all the people that God said he would bring back together. So folks, you've got two things. You have restoration and you've got regathering. The restoration is God promised Abraham. Think about this fulfillment. God promised that he would bless all nations through him. That's what he's bringing back together, ethnos. And then the regathering, this is absolutely astonishing. God is drawing people together and fulfilling two incredible, massive Old Testament themes. And Jerusalem is jam-packed with people, some two to three million people. And they're astonished and they're marveled because of what they're hearing. you got a multinational assembly of people and they're fixated on what is going on in that place. And they realize that people are speaking their own languages. What was also discernible was they were not Jerusalemites. You don't notice that in the text. They say, these are Galileans. Huh, what does that mean? Well, do you remember when Peter was warming himself by the fire after he denied Christ, or he's getting ready to deny him three times? Y'all remember that? And the girl says to him, I recognize you. Why do y'all think that's the case? Because Peter has an accent. Peter is noticeably not a Jerusalemite. He is a Galilean. So that's why she recognizes him. She recognizes him because of his speech. So these people on this day are listening to their own languages and the ones speaking to them have a Louisiana accent. (laughs) I'm serious. They're giving it away by their accent. And they're saying, these are not Jerusalemites. They're Galileans. So here we've got these backwoods, backwater people out of this backwater place. They're hillbillies up here in Galilee. Perhaps even they have their fishing overalls on. I'll take it one step forward. They've got their hand-me-down, Bass Pro Shop camouflage on, and it's absolutely clear that these guys do not belong to Jerusalem, and yet they're proclaiming the mighty deeds of God in our own language. Dead giveaway when you've got camo on that you're a friend of Uncle Cy, right? With Duck Dynasty. I like camo. I told Don, he went down to New Orleans and he won't ever do what I tell him to do. And I said, listen, bring me back a New Orleans. I'll wear it because I went to Southeastern and Southern and Don thinks the only seminary that's good is New Orleans. And I told him, I said, bring me back a camouflage New Orleans t-shirt and I'll wear it. I haven't got that camouflage New Orleans shirt yet. I don't know what's wrong with them down there, but maybe they'll get it right. But the deal is, they don't have little pins on or cards that we wear on our shirts sometimes that tell us our name in the church that said, I'm a Galilean. 
But they're recognizable because they're not Jerusalemites. In Acts 1, 9-11, Luke gives us what we could call the table of nations. In Genesis 11, we have that as well. So it's the national makeup of the world at that time. Think about how great our God is. Listen to this. The whole world's makeup at that time is flooding into Jerusalem. And on this day called Pentecost, Feast of Harvest, God Almighty will speak through just hillbillies. The ones that a little later in Acts are going to say, man, you're an unlearned guy and you're up here in the synagogue telling us that we crucified Jesus. You're exactly right. And they're proclaiming the mighty deeds of God. Just think about that. He then works his way all the way through the table of nations, northern, southern. Uh, this is not a random list. He's reaching it to the farthest, farthest parts, farthest parts of it for proselytes and brought together. Folks, this is covenant restoration from the, all the four corners of the earth. And it's being fulfilled right here in Acts chapter 2. Now in the middle of verse 11, we see this. Notice what the text says. We're moving rapidly, right? Verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our tongues the mighty works of God. That's awesome, isn't it? Understanding redemption, giving the gospel. These are devout Jews, many of them, and they're rehearsing the redemptive events. And there's no question they're probably tying together the exodus with Christ. And they're, they're tying together Old Testament redemptive events together with the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice verse 12 and 13. We get the responses to the gift of languages. Y'all see that? The devout Jews were literally, here's the word, they're at a loss wondering what does all this mean. Verse 13 gives a second response. They say the people are drunk. They had this new wine, which folks, nothing was more intoxicating than the new wine. That's why they use this word. Where did it come from? Well, it came from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 7 and 8. That is a covenant curse. Where God says, you priests haven't honored me, so I'm going to give you a stammering tongue and I'm going to make you act like a drunk person. And it happens. But here's the ironic twist to it. The ones that are drunk that day were not the preachers preaching. It was the people listening. They couldn't understand the intelligible gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the reason... Listen, all these Jerusalemites, all the Hebrews that came together that day, that mocked and said they're drunk men, they rejected the straightforward fulfillment of all the Old Testament Scriptures right there on that day. Folks, if you reject the intelligible Word of God regarding who Jesus Christ is and you don't believe and trust Him, you will spend eternity in hell and you will be under the covenant curse. The ones who believed came under the covenant blessing. Amen? All the fulfillment of the Old Testament. New Covenant believers. The ones who rejected the word that day and said no to Jesus Christ and no to redemptive events of the cross, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and fulfillment of the Old Testament, they fell under covenant curse. And Isaiah says they have ears but they don't hear. Remember that? I can't go through Isaiah, but just think about this. Part of the covenant curse. This was given... Oh, they're just, they're just preaching new wine. They, they, they've been drinking wine. Look, Peter's going to come up and say, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, dude. We didn't drink this kind of stuff in the morning. Now, he's going to do that when he defends what's going on. But for our understanding, I just got two points of application and we're going home. Here's the first one. Pentecost is a unique 
redemptive historical event. Have I made that clear enough to y'all? It is unique, it is redemptive, it is historical. This was a Christ event. This is the end of the times event. As a matter of fact, when, pre- when Peter stands to preach his first sermon, he's going to say, this is that which was spoken of by Joel. These are the last days. So when did the last days begin? At Pentecost. Are y'all listening? That's when the last days began. So the giving of the Spirit. It's not some kind of added bonus to the Christian life. It's not kind of some kind of second work of grace. It is the very capstone of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It has to take place with the nations because it is part of God's plan. If you want to see that, look at Isaiah 52, 15 and Psalm 2, verse 8. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. This day was a unique demonstration of the messianic right and office of the king of glory. He is both, he is all three, prophet, priest, and king. He is ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he gives his gift of the Spirit of God to expedite the mission. There's no way to do the mission without the Spirit of God in us, and the Spirit of God working through the church. So we have the resurrected Lord exalted in heaven, ruling and reigning, and we got his Spirit poured out in his church so that we can fulfill the mission that God has called us to fulfill. Now, folks, we back off certain passages because we get a little the warm fuzzies and we get afraid. There's so much abuse in the circles. Somebody was joking with me before I came in that when I read this text, I don't read it like Benny Hinn. As a matter of fact, Benny Hinn probably doesn't read it at all. He probably just stands up and says what he thinks it means. But I've told you what it means. In the Bible, you say, well, preacher, I don't believe that. Well, you don't believe your Bible. I'll just go ahead and tell you. When you translate Scripture with Scripture, you can see the absolute fulfillment of what the Word of God says. And so when you read Acts 2, you you must remember that this is a historical, redemptive event that is taking place. So, we don't need to be afraid of the day of Pentecost. You don't need to be afraid of the work of the Holy Spirit. There is no us without Pentecost. Y'all do understand that, don't you? There's no gathering today. What's today? February 5th? Yeah. 2017. No gathering today of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this place without the Spirit of God. And without Pentecost. We don't have the gospel does not go anywhere without the coming of the Spirit of God. So the giving of the Spirit is just as much of a redemptive act that had to be fulfilled and was, as was the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ. The Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit, so incredibly important. You know what happened basically with Pentecost? Again, the last days began. And that's how Peter is going to start his first sermon. Pentecost is salvation history. So, mark that down. It is a one-time, redemptive, historical event that will never be repeated again. To ask for another Pentecost is to ask for Jesus to go back to the cross. Not going to happen. Okay? This was a redemptive event. Number two, what about tongues? Because all you're sitting there wondering about that, right? Well, ultimately two things happen with the gift of tongues. Number one, Babel is reversed. Any donuts out there? Are y'all with me? You hadn't glazed over, right? This is important. The ultimate fulfillment, two reasons. Babel is Reverse. Does anybody remember the Tower of Babel? Did y'all go to Sunday school? <laughs> Raise your hand. 
Y'all going to make me get annoyed. There we go. We remember the Tower of Babel. And what we have there is an erection of a building that took place, a tower, which they called the gate toward heaven. They built this out of human pride. And God looks down and says, you're not going to do that. And so God confuses all the languages and he disperses them. And this multilinguistic crowd is banished. Uh, this crowd that had a known language together is confused. That's what the word Babel means, mixed up, confused. Right? He scatters that out over the face of the world. And here at Pentecost, a universal blessing was taking place because Babel was being reversed. Nations and tongues were no longer scattered, as it were, but united not with people trying to build a tower toward God in human glory, but actually brought together for God's glory. And the mission of the gospel, uh, that's what brings God the most glory, right? It's His Son and what He accomplished at glory. So that's what's taking place here. So all the coalition of pride at Babel, where God speaks and shatters all of it, He confuses these rebels' tongues and languages. He scatters them over the human race at Pentecost. He signals the reversal of this judgment, drawing people together from every nation under heaven. And again, it was not for the erection of human pride, but this at Pentecost was ultimately for God's glory. So Babel was reversed. Here's the second thing. Tongues will be a covenant blessing and a covenant curse. Folks, this had nothing to do with ecstatic utterance. It had nothing to do with languages that someone would speak and someone would interpret at this point. Had nothing to do with that. Everybody heard the person speak in their own language. Okay? So, why the re what's the reason for it? Well, for devout Jews on the day of Pentecost, tongues brought the good news of the gospel for those who would receive, but it also brought covenant cursing for those who would not believe. Their response of the devout Jews who were seeking would lead them to believe in Jesus Christ. However, again, don't read this as a camp meeting. Covenantal promises being fulfilled right before their very eyes. All the nations were being blessed through Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, yet not all believed, right? You see what the text says? There was those who mocked and scoffed. To them, it was a sign of covenant judgment. Deuteronomy 28, you'll be oppressed by an enemy and you won't understand. Jeremiah 5.15, he applies it to the Babylonians. And then Isaiah 28.7, he speaks of judgment, stammering lips, and a foreign tongue. Folks, when one rejects and refuses the simple intelligibility of the Word of God regarding who Jesus is, divine judgment falls on that person in the shape and form of the unintelligible. The intelligible reading of the Word of God falls on deaf ears when you don't trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It becomes unintelligible. Folks, when you read the Bible, it means a lot to know the author. Are y'all listening? So that's what happens on that day. They scoff and they moth. This is just like drunk men. Those who believe on that day are entered into covenant blessing. In the new covenant. Those who reject into judgment. Why? They're cut off for rejecting the word of God. Folks, how important is the word? Faith cometh by and hearing by the word. And you best believe that the word is absolutely clear and truthful regarding who Jesus Christ is. And that's what they're doing that day. They're preaching 
the glorious gospel of Jesus. We don't have time to address this, but note what Paul says in 1 Corinthians regarding tongues. Last major thing, and I'm done. Listen. Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Paul is dealing with the abuse of the actual gift of tongues. And in chapter 1, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, here's what he says. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. In other words, grow up. Quit being immature. Y'all got that? Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it was written by people. All right, folks, listen. What is he talking about? He's talking about an Old Testament text. And here's what he quotes. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners. That's them, that's them guys in overalls. Right? Foreigners will, will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Check this out. Verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Did y'all read that? This is not what Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland say. This is what thus saith the Lord says. And it says that the language and gift was a sign for unbelievers. Why? So they could hear the gospel. Right? While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And again, you got to stop thinking like babies. And that's what we have in our world today in a lot of denominations. Immature thinking about tongues. And Paul says, stop being babies, period. But understand why the gift was given to begin with, and that was for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 28, verse 11, is that exact verse. If you want to look that up. Exact verse as given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. So let's, let's, let's land the plane. And I'm getting done before the Super Bowl even starts tonight, right? Here's the deal. When we fail to be what we ought to be as a church, we've lived on the wrong side of one of three of these events. Y'all ready? The Lord Jesus Christ conquered death and come out of the grave. Our Savior's alive. And we, all, we often live like He's dead. Folks, we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is with me, no matter what you say. Right? He is. So when we live on the wrong side of the resurrection, like we serve a dead Savior, this church will do nothing. All right, what about the ascension? Folks, who rules and reigns? He's the exalted Son of God who's seated in the heavens. And He will have His will accomplished on the face of this earth. He will save His people to the ends of the earth. You can take it to the bank. He's exalted in heaven. And how about the giving of the Spirit? When we live on the wrong side of Pentecost... We act as if the Spirit of the living God hadn't been given to us. That's a pretty easy sermon, isn't it? Some of you are thinking, why don't you say that to begin with? But folks, that's the sermon. That's what Pentecost is about. It's about the power given to us by God to fulfill the mission. And without the Spirit of God, the mission will never be fulfilled. My question to you today is, are you engaged in the mission? It's easy to get caught up with the, the things that are not taught in that Scripture. Or in that text because you want the, the warm fuzzies and the sensationalism. How many of these churches that, love, that are out there that love the sensationalism and the false gifts that they're proposing out there, how many of them are busy winning people to Jesus? Let me tell you, if you're fulfilling the purpose of Acts 2, then you're a witness for Christ. 
Is that amen or oh me? Right? Because that's why the Holy Spirit empowered you. Yes, certainly to live for Christ, but also to be a witness to the ends of the earth. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this marvelous, incredible text of Scripture. And Lord, what I'm captivated with is the fact that they saw all the fulfillment. They listened to the sermon that day. They listened to the gospel being shared in their own native tongue. And yet they said, they mocked, they scoffed, and they had an inability to hear the word. God, don't let that be the case for anyone in this church building. Lord, let them hear the gospel that the Son of God entered this world. God came near, robed in human flesh. You lived, Lord God, on the face of this earth. You made footprints on it. You lived an absolute perfect life in fulfillment of the law, never one time sinned. And then you took that perfect body to the tree of Calvary. And the Bible says you became sin for us, that the very righteousness of God might be in us. That's the gospel. And then you rose victoriously to vindicate your work before the Father. And then you ascended into the clouds, into heaven, and you're seated at the right hand of the Father. Then you poured out your Spirit on those who believe in you so that they can take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, I pray that if there's someone in the building that's unbelieving, they're lost, that your gospel would captivate their heart, that your spirit would work. You you go on to say there's no life apart from the spirit, John 6. You go on to tell us that no one can come to the Father unless the spirit draws him. Spirit of the living God, we're at your mercy to change someone's life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.